welcome to the Diagnostics Dialogues. Here we present discussions with experts in diagnostics and specialty medicine, designed to keep you up to date with the hottest clinical topics. Tune in to hear Dr. Damien, aka Pat Alasia, Senior Medical Director for Quest Diagnostics, interview a variety of medical luminaries to get their take on some of the complex challenges faced by hospitals and health systems. episode, as we still hunker down to prevent the spread of COVID-19, Dr. Elasia sits with Dr. Nicholas Bellows, an expert in infectious disease, to discuss the pandemic and beyond. As of today, March 4th, 2021, the United States has seen nearly 30 million cases of COVID and over 500,000 deaths. Our seven-day moving average covers around 70,000 new cases. And to put that into perspective, Across the globe, we have seen over 115 million cases and approximately two and a half million deaths. The daily new cases globally hover around 400,000. For any number of reasons, some of which we understand and some of which we don't, the United States remains at the top of the global list in terms of total cases, total deaths, active cases, and total cases per 1 million. These statistics, they come from the CDC, the New York Times, and the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health are staggering by any measure. And yet, even though it appears that the worst could possibly be over, and even though it appears that we might have possibly passed our epidemiological peak, and even though some states are loosening or removing the mask mandates and relaxing prevention measures, I wonder, as a former healthcare system executive, a practicing physician, and an academic, whether or not our enthusiasm for getting back to work, our enthusiasm to getting back to our pre-COVID, pre-pandemic times is moving too quickly, or are we moving too slowly, or are we moving at the right speed? And I'm asking you this question because lives depend on it, because we as healthcare business professionals and medical professionals have a lot of people relying on us to make the right decisions, to provide the insights based upon our experience, expertise, the way we talk to our colleagues. And they're depending upon us for their lives, their livelihood, their health, and their well-being, not only for themselves, but for their families. So here today to help us answer these questions and to provide us with some insights into the biological and social behavior of the coronavirus, as well as to give us some insights about prevention, vaccines, antigen testing, antibody testing, is Dr. Nick Bellows. And Nick is a great colleague. He's a board-certified infectious disease specialist who now leads our COVID-19 back-to-work and safe-at-work initiatives at Quest for over 50,000 Quest employees. So Dr. Bellows, you're an infectious disease expert. You've seen a lot of viruses. You've seen a lot of bacteria. Why was this such a surprise? Why did it move so fast? We've seen SARS, we've seen MERS, we've seen Ebola, we've seen influenza, but this really grabbed everybody by the throat, quite literally, and took off. Why was it so much more infectious and so much more deadly than those other viruses and those other diseases? 
One of the things is that viruses have various degree of ease of transmission. This happens to be one that's very easily transmitted. The question about why the virus is so deadly still remains unanswered because we have people in their 20s who have succumbed to COVID. We've had athletes that have succumbed to COVID. We've had residents that have succumbed to COVID who were no pre-existing conditions. I think that that still remains a mystery. And then on the other side of the coin, you see the individuals who are over 65, 70 years old who may have prolonged hospitalizations and do really well and able to get out of the hospital. So we really don't have an answer as to why individuals have different responses and some ended up doing not doing very well, in fact, dying, and other individuals actually recover and may have some long-term sequelae. Wish I had an answer, and unfortunately, we really don't at this point in time, because we've all seen those cases. Even in spite of all our research and all our efforts, it sounds like if we don't really fully understand the disease state, we go back to first principles. And those first principles are prevention. Is that where you're going with this? That is correct. Uh, we have to go back to basic epidemiology and infection prevention. So how do you prevent respiratory viruses from spreading? One, social distancing. Two, mask to prevent individuals from contracting or coming in contact with droplets as you're speaking or as you're in the same vicinity, hand hygiene, and also social distancing. We know that from basic physics that particles that travel with speaking Six feet is probably about the max that they'll travel. So that's the reason for the six foot social distancing piece. No, no. I mean, I always like it, you know, when the really smart folks in the class go back to the physics, you can always tell who was the top of the class and who wasn't. I'm not going to follow you into the physical universe here. Okay. So social distancing, six feet, masking, hand hygiene. What else do you have? Those are the current recommendations, which you still need to continue. The other thing that's going to really help us with this is the vaccine, as we already have begun to see. Getting shots in people's arms. We know that the two-dose vaccines are in the 90% uh, effective range, and the single-dose vaccines are in the 80% effective range. So getting shots in people's arms, continuing the infection control practices, the social distancing, the masking, those kinds of things are going to be our biggest assets in terms of, of slowing down the spread and eventually stopping the spread. What I'm hearing here, uh, going back to the basic, basic principles, the vaccine is going to help. But let me just switch gears here for a minute. So now we're over a year into this pandemic. We've seen a lot of people infected. We've seen a lot of people affected. We've seen a lot of people who who've died. We have testing, we have vaccines. I'm in the C-suite now with the health system where I'm trying to run a big practice. And my focus is always on patient safety, staff safety, family safety. Should I still be worried about this? I mean, I hear all the news says, oh, well, you know, Texas is open, Pennsylvania might be open. I mean, I'm, you know, so, sure. so do I still worry? Yes, you still worry. And your two solutions in the institution from the institutional perspective are one, making sure as many people as you can get vaccinated. That's going to be your biggest start. The other is being sure that you continue your social distancing, your masking, taking care of your employees from that perspective, making sure that all those basic infection control principles are still maintained, even though we see numbers decreasing. The other thing that just to add to that is, you know, there's been some talk about the variants and the infectivity of the variants. The way to stop the variants from occurring is to stop transmission. If we stop transmission, we won't see the variants occurring any longer. So I think that that's another thing to keep in mind. So again, going back to our health system colleagues or colleagues who are responsible for patient care, you're the expert. My North Star is safety. Where do I go with my testing? Do I start with PCR testing? Do I start with antigen? Do I get a urine cup? Do I get a blood sample? 
take me along that path because assuming that I haven't had the vaccine yet, we're going to get the vaccine, but I've got a large population. You've managed a large population of employees and people at Quest. Tell me how you think about that. PCR is the gold standard. It's actually what's recommended by the Infectious Disease Society of America, as well as the CDC for diagnostic testing. The other thing that we use for screening is antigen testing, which can be done in large populations relatively quickly at a relatively low cost. And that's how you can keep track of your population. There are some healthcare systems that are actually testing their employees who care for COVID-infected patients. For example, in the ICU or on the floor, they're actually doing weekly antigen testing in those. And the antigen tests are actually relatively sensitive and specific. So if you're looking for it in a large population, that's the most rapid and the most feasible way to do because you get an immediate result. If anybody's positive, you can isolate them and then confirm that test with a PCR. The tests are actually very effective in individuals that are asymptomatic. If you have an individual who is asymptomatic that develops a positive antigen test, that's an individual that you would ultimately assume is positive and would need to be quarantined. That would want to be followed by the PCR testing. An individual who is symptomatic and has a negative antigen test, that's the individual you're concerned about because that's where we fall down on the reliability of the antigen tests and the symptomatic individuals. And the asymptomatic individuals are very reliable. So how sensitive are these tests? Yeah, I'm looking specifically at the antigen test. I know the PCR is 97, 98, 99%. That's great. But tell me about the sensitivity and specificity of an antigen test, because I have responsibility not only for the nurses and the doctors and people you know, who are administration, but it's also for the electricians, the people that run the power plant, the people that take care of the cafeteria, environmental services, critically important people to all aspects of the hospital. How good are these antigen tests? They actually are are very good if you're looking at screening populations to determine, for example, as I mentioned, on a weekly basis. Some of the hospitals are actually testing people on a weekly basis just to get the rapid information. And they're even more sensitive in the individuals that are asymptomatic. That's where you really pick up those individuals that are potentially at risk for transmission to patients because they're asymptomatic transmission to patients or transmission to coworkers because they're asymptomatic, have no idea they're shedding virus. So as long as there is a detectable viral load in the individual you're testing, the antigen tests will be above 90% in those individuals that are asymptomatic in terms of sensitivity and specificity. How often do you use the antigen test for testing your individuals in the hospital? It depends on the degree of penetration you have a virus in your hospital. If you have a large unit with a large number of COVID infections, and that's both in the, uh, for example, in the ICU and on the floor, weekly testing is probably recommended. And the reason for that is the fact that you may not get any symptomatology or you may not get an individual that's positive from the time of contact until about seven days. So that's the reason I would do it once a week. Okay, that's great to know. So doing the simple things right, washing your hands, social distancing, and then potential high impact areas, you're doing weekly antigen testing. Terrific. Now, tell me a little bit about the experience that you've had with Quest. You're responsible for a large group of patients and families. Tell me a little bit about your experience. And I realize you may not be able to get into the numbers, but good, bad, indifferent. Have you made a difference here? I believe we have. One of the first things that we did, even before it was recommended, and there was even some discussion about whether masking was beneficial or not, just the fact that knowing about respiratory viruses and knowing about their transmissibility through secretions, we put our essential employees 
the laboratory workers, our PSC individuals, and the individuals working in physicians' offices all in, in masks. And we've been very fortunate that we've had very, very low, if any, transmission in our workplace. All of the transmissions that I know of that we have traced have really been from community-based sources, not from worker-to-worker transmission. So again, those basic principles, masking, hand hygiene, social distancing are really important. And we initiated those early, I will tell you, probably back the end of January, beginning of February, as we saw the numbers increasing in Washington state. And that just made sense from an infection control perspective. Again, it's a viral infection, upper respiratory tract infection, easily transmissible. How do you prevent it? You put a block up. So the block that you're using is a surgical mask and keeping people distance and being sure that hand hygiene is being carried out. It sounds so simple, but it's also, you know, I know it's a challenge. So I realize you don't have a crystal ball, Dr. Bellows, but how do you think this plays out? What are you seeing over the next six months? This is March. What does it look like in September and October? According to the administration, we should have enough vaccine for everybody by the end of May. So if that's the case and we can get 80% of the population vaccinated, we should be developing herd immunity and we should be in good shape for the summer moving forward. Unfortunately, there is resistance to the vaccine, especially among some individuals who are disenfranchised from the healthcare system. And that's gonna be an issue with getting people vaccinated in, in many instances. But the vaccine is one, continuing our vigilance with respect to our infection control practices is the other. Those two things together, if we can continue those for at least another 60 to 90 days, I think we'll see the light at the end of the tunnel and it won't be a train. Terrific. So what have you learned from this pandemic? For example, if you look at what happened in Wuhan, the symptomatology and the outbreak occurred in December. And by January, we were seeing cases in Washington. And if you go back a little bit further, what you see is that individuals who had traveled to China, and this was especially prevalent in California, when going back and looking at CIRA just for surveillance, that individuals were infected as far back as November. And these were individuals that had traveled to China or who had been exposed to individuals that had traveled to China. Again, so we need to be vigilant globally about what is happening around the world. Again, we're a global economy, a global society. So just because it's happening in one country doesn't mean that it can't get to us or to another country very quickly. And I think if you look at the patterning that we saw across Europe, we saw we initially saw the big outbreaks in Europe, again, because of the ease of transportation between China and Europe. And then we saw those individuals coming to the United States. And that's really how you, if you follow the pattern of the epidemic, that's really how you saw it. Because you saw the numbers increasing, if you recall about what we saw in Italy with the high numbers initially, and then we started seeing those numbers in the U.S. So I think you're speaking very cogently to the importance of infectious disease, surveillance, recognition, intervention, and really communication. And I think that's what um, sounds like, you know, we're going to be using going forward. I certainly hope we use more of that going forward so that we can avoid another pandemic. So what changes do you anticipate will occur in the U.S. health system as a result of this pandemic? Two things I hope we see. One is increased funding for public health measures. Our public health system is really strained at this point in time, which is one of the reasons we have not had the contact tracing that we needed, which is another important piece of epidemiology for tracking individuals who've been exposed. I can tell you right now that before the National Guard became involved in administering vaccines, 
that instead of public health nurses doing uh, contact tracing, which is as important as giving a vaccine so that we can separate those individuals who may have had an exposure and quarantine them, they ended up giving vaccines. We really needed them doing contract tracing and following individuals and putting those individuals at risk in quarantine. The other thing that we need to see is, again, as I mentioned earlier, more, more money spent on public health infrastructure. There are actually public health offices that still receive faxes for mandatory reporting of certain infections versus none of that data has been essentially digitized yet. And I know that in several counties here in Texas, several large counties here in Texas, people still get information via fax, which is not actually the most appropriate mechanism because it may sit on the fax machine for three or four days and that affects your contact tracing. So money spent on public health infrastructure and also plans for other emerging infections. I mean, we know this is gonna happen again it happens. Uh, it's just the nature of the beast, especially because we're a global economy. And we're also seeing viruses as this particular virus potentially jump from other species into humans, which is what we saw with HIV, which is what we've seen with swine flu, which is what we've seen with poultry-related flu, avian flu. We're seeing those kinds of issues as well. And we need to be aware that when we see those outbreaks, that we need to take them seriously globally and begin looking here in the U.S., one of the other things that has escaped us from the, uh, the variant perspective is that we were not doing enough genomic sequencing to see if these variants were occurring. The two most recently reported variants were in New York and in uh, California. And if you look back at the data on sequencing, the California variant was present probably around 1219 or 1220 it was first detected. And the New York variant was detected back at the early part of December through some genomic sequencing. But we weren't really doing enough genomic sequencing to keep track of these variants as they were occurring. Now we're fortunately doing a lot more genomic sequencing and are able to follow these variants to a greater degree. But that's a big part of the epidemiology and the uh, contact tracing, as well as the infection prevention. So I think one of the things that I find most inspiring about all of this, I mean, as devastating as it's been, you know, I've seen a massive confluence of um, thinking in, in public health, where we've seen gaps in public health that we weren't aware of, huge gaps in continuum of care, you know, people being left out of the system who needed to be in the system, on the other side of that, I've seen an enormous amount of innovation in the area of vaccine development. The speed of the vaccine has been very rapid. The speed of the testing, the PCR testing you know, on the private side and the innovation you know, that we're seeing in terms of technology and tracking, all those things are incredibly inspiring against this backdrop of you know, devastation. So what do you see as a silver lining in all this? I mean, how do you put it together? Well, I think the silver lining is, as, as you just mentioned, is the rapidity with which we've been able to develop the testing, the rapidity with which we've been able to develop the vaccines. If you look at typical vaccine history, vaccines can take anywhere from four to six years to be developed. The mRNA platform has been around for probably about 10 or 15 years. And so unfortunately, it had been tried with other viral infections and had not really been beneficial. It was tried with Ebola, tried with some of the other viral infections, and the vaccines were just not beneficial. It's very beneficial with SARS. So a lot of that information has really sped us along in terms of there'll be additional work on the mRNA type vaccines and the other vaccines which have come to development very quickly for COVID. The one area where I think we are lacking at this point in time, and it's unfortunate because we've sort of glossed it over, has been in the therapeutics. 
I mean, we do have some drugs for treatment, but we sort of went from infection to pushing for vaccine and sort of didn't miss that in-between step of treatment for individuals. Now, we have learned a lot about how to manage patients in the hospital and in the ICU and at home with things like uh, monoclonal antibodies and convalescent sera. So we've learned a lot. And I think that we need to continue because the therapeutics are just as important. I mean, yes, we can develop vaccines. Yes, we can do our infection control, but people are still going to become infected. And how do we take care of those individuals that are infected? So we're moving forward with therapeutics as well, albeit not as quickly as it did with a vaccine because the vaccine is really viewed as the, the fix. But I think we've learned a lot. One, as I say, about infection prevention, two, about where the weaknesses are in our US healthcare system. Three, moving forward with vaccine development. So I think we've really learned a lot. If I may regress for a minute here, like about our HIV infection, you know, we learned a lot about therapeutics. We had one drug initially, and now we've got that people had to take on a regular basis every four hours. Now we've got people are taking one pill a day. So we've really moved forward with HIV. And I have a very good friend that practices oncology and her comment to me, she does breast oncology and her comment to me was, had it not been for HIV infection and understanding the basic biologics of HIV infection, we wouldn't have nearly the treatments for cancer that we, for breast cancer that we have today. We'd still be using adriamycin and donorubricin and some of the other drugs that we use. So I think that with each pathogen that we learn about and we learn how to treat, we also learn more that we can apply to other infections and other infectious agents and other disease states. Wow. Dr. Bellows, what a journey this has been for us. You've taken us along the path that talks about the global you know, outbreak, the pandemic, the testing, the vaccine, the therapeutics, this has been incredibly valuable. And I hope that our audience has found this to be as valuable as I have. Of course, if the audience has further questions, and I know you're very responsive to email, we'll make sure that the, they have your email available. So as we wrap this up, you're the expert, you've seen this for a, a lot of different facets of diseases. What do you want to leave the audience with? that changes the way we think about what we've learned today. What do you wanna leave us with that's gonna impact the care that we provide and are privileged to provide our patients, their families, and the staff that we support every day? I think the biggest lesson is that we still need to realize that we're not out of the woods yet and that we need to continue our stringent infection control practices for at least another 60 to 90 days until we get more people vaccinated. So I think those are our two big takeaways. One, make sure that access to vaccine is available for all healthcare workers and actually for all individuals in the, in the U.S. and as many as we can get vaccinated. Having fluid in a bottle really doesn't do you any good unless you can get it in somebody's arm. So that's really what we want to do is get those shots in people's arms. And the other is, again, continuing our infection, again, going back to our simple early procedures to prevent respiratory viruses, which is masking, social distancing, and hand hygiene. Those are, are really the three things that we can continue to do if our goal is to continue to see dropping numbers in our caseloads, in our mortality rate, and in our hospital admissions. Again, incredibly valuable. Really greatly appreciate your contribution. Thank you all again for listening to Dr. Nick Bellows, who clearly represents the best of Quest. I'm Dr. Damien Alasia, and I'm signing off today, hoping to visit you all again in the near future. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for this episode of the Diagnostic Dialogues. We hope you enjoyed the show. 
Please follow us on your favorite podcast apps and follow us on LinkedIn for more cutting edge content and to engage with the physician guests from the program. Be sure to visit our site, questdialogues.com. Until next time.